Intersection is brought to you by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Learn more at touchpoint.health. What makes it, I think, so compelling is I deal with the real issue of domestic violence from, I don't like to say both sides, but from male and female perspective, because it happens to men just as well as women. The sad part about it is it happens to women more often where there's death. What's your story? I went through domestic violence with my uh, wife. That's how I got custody of my two daughters, Angie, who is deceased from domestic violence. And uh, so I went through it with uh, being a male and being pushed and cussed out and and talked to in a very negative way, cussed out, uh, demeaned in all kinds of ways. And I stayed in the relationship for the protection of my daughters. What happened to your daughter? Well, she got uh, shot by her husband uh, multiple times, and then he killed himself. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. I didn't know it from the beginning, and I didn't think it was normal. I knew it wasn't normal because of uh, how I was raised. My mother and father never had uh, violent arguments or arguments where they cussed each other out or called each other names, and uh, they never pushed each other or any of that. So I knew what a what was not normal was my relationship with my wife because she had been through a lot of violence in her family and a lot of violence growing up, and uh, so. I thought that because I didn't come from that background that I could be the one that would help her deal with that. You know, I came from a loving family. Mother and father are together. And uh, there was no fighting and fussing like that in my household, and there was in hers. So I thought that I could be the one that would show her that, you know, life doesn't have to be lived that way. Well, in, in fairy tales, that works. What I didn't know was that I didn't have the knowledge about domestic violence, about insecurities, about the things that go behind the scenes or in the mind about domestic violence that I found out later. That is one of the reasons why we have Angie's Advocates and why I'm trying to be even more vocal to help people because what you don't know, you can't deal with. It's a Friday afternoon and I received a phone call. It was from William Peppers and he had a powerful message and a story to tell, one that I did not expect one that breaks all stigmas and stereotypes in the world of domestic violence. It's a beautiful Friday afternoon, so we met in a park where he could share his whole story. As we sat and chatted, we gained an audience. A crowd of women sat and listened instead of setting up for a wedding shower. He is a black man who won custody of his two girls after being a victim and survivor of domestic violence. He also grieves the loss of one of those daughters who was a victim of domestic violence, shot multiple times minutes after talking to her father on the phone. This is a big story, one that's hard to tell in just one short podcast episode. It's one that takes many turns, many directions, and even takes tangents where I find myself wanting to keep William on point. But what I find in this story is his journey of grief, trying to reconcile the many years of abuse and seeking acceptance in this world where he finds himself an anomaly. His story is intertwined with numerous intersections, and I truly think he is trying to justify to himself he did nothing wrong. Here is his whole story, the whole truth, the whole conversation. It is long, but what you'll find is a man who just wants to feel normal again, whatever that means. Tell me, when did you realize that you were in a domestic abuse situation? When did you cross over? Uh, About five months into the marriage is when I really realized it. And at five months and two weeks, I went to a lawyer here in uh, Clemson, and I was going to get what I heard about was an annulment. So I wanted to find out what I needed to do. And because of the uh, being cussed out, being pushed, and just all the craziness and the way she wanted to treat uh, Angie, my daughter, because Christy, my youngest daughter, wasn't born then. And uh, she wanted to beat her the way she said she was beaten. And I didn't grow up like that, you know, and my child was not going to be done like that. So I wanted to get the marriage annulled. And what I found out, and this is another reason why I'm so vocal, because uh, 
things, a lot of things are looked at differently when it's a male, like kind of like what you alluded to. What I found out when I went to that lawyer was because I was a male, and these were her words, not only a male, but a black male, it would be almost impossible for you to get custody of your daughter. What did you think when you heard that? I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Because I told her about what, my, what I would stop my ex-wife from doing to my daughter. You know, wanting to hit her with extension cords, taking sh wooden shoes out of her hand, uh, anything that she could pick up, uh, clothes hangers. She wanted to, to beat her with those uh, extension cords. And I told her about this, and she told me that since there was no physical evidence, because I stopped her, because I would grab her hands and not let her hit her, make Angie go in the other room, because I stopped my child from getting abused, I could not get custody of her. So if I would have got the annulment, I would have got the annulment and she would have got custody of Angie. And I know what would have happened to Angie. So I stayed in the marriage. So I understand a woman staying in a marriage uh, for financial reasons or to what she feels is to protect her children because she thinks that the person is going to harm them. You know, I can understand their fear. When you walked out of that meeting, what did you think? When you had that... That's a very harsh reality. What did you think? I thought that that meeting was mind-blowing. That everything that I believed in about doing the right thing was not going to work in this situation because I was doing the right thing. You know, I was stopping her without physically harming her. I was trying to talk to her. We would cry together. And that's what began to show me that it was deeper than me, that it was some violence there, domestic violence there. Because afterwards, she would cry and say, you know, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know how to handle this. You know, that's what I want to do, but I don't want to do it. What happened next? How did you progress and protect your daughter, but figure out where to go next? to get out of that situation? Well, a lot of times I wanted my daughter to spend the night with my mom because Angie basically had been with us since she was a few months old anyway. And uh, what I wanted her to do, especially when I went to work, was for her to stay with my mom. And uh, then I would pick her up whenever I got off from work or pick her up maybe uh, the two days because I worked like a swing shift where it was like two days on, two or three days on. and. Um, so that was what I wanted to do, and that's what I tried to do, because I wanted her to be alone with her as less as possible, but just like all domestic violent relationships, things will get smooth for a little bit, and you'll hope and think things have changed, and, uh, and they only change for those few days, and then all it takes is for her to get upset at Angie about the least little thing. Was Angie ever hurt in that, in, during that time period? Did she ever get any physical abuse? No. I, I always uh, stopped it. Some of the stopping of it was just to sit down and talk to her. And like I said, she would cry in my arms, and, and that's when I knew it was bigger than me because uh, I, would, I would ask her about going to church, trying to get that spiritual foundation there. Uh, I reached out for help to a lot of different people. I talked to other people, and uh, there was just no help there as far as for her because she was going to have to go get the help. And that's when I feel God intervened. How did God intervene? Talk about that. Uh, unfortunately, she hit a lady that worked at J.P. Stevens in the head with a pair of scissors, and that lady had to get 101 stitches. And I'll never forget what the magistrate told me when I went to talk to the magistrate, because I couldn't understand why they wouldn't give her bond. And uh, when I finally got to see the magistrate up at the courthouse after me getting frisked, I let them know, the, the deputies know, uh, why I was there, and I wanted to talk to the magistrate. And they were like, well, you know, you're her husband, and we need for you to get up against the wall. And I'm like, what? They were like, yeah, we need to uh, check you and, and frisk you to make sure you have no weapons or nothing. And I was like, I didn't hit nobody. And uh, so they went and talked to the magistrate, and she came out and talked to me after that. And um, I asked her, you know, why would she not get bond? And she told me that, uh, that the doctor said if it had been an inch deeper that it would have killed that lady. Well, how God intervened was my uh, wife had to go get counseling. The judge ordered her to do a year of weekends in jail, which is 26 weekends. They let her keep her job because I asked the judge. See, I didn't know the, I didn't know the uh, whole thing about domestic violence and, and the violence in itself. And I asked the judge to please be lenient on her, and so he gave her weekends. 
she get off from work and have to report to the jail. But they also sentenced her to get uh, counseling at Seneca Mental Health. So that was the beginning of her being able to get some help for her issues. See, and I didn't know at the time that I had issues because I was taking it. I thought I was doing the right thing as a man to protect my child and also to try to get my wife to go get help because I couldn't fix her. And I finally realized that, that I couldn't fix her. No, no amount of love that I had for her could fix her. What happened next? Did, did y'all stay together or did you end up getting divorced or what happened? We stayed together for another, I think a year and a half, maybe two years after that. And uh, it, was, it was a roller coaster. Uh, she tried to kill me in the relationship, uh, toward the end of the relationship. I would wake up at night after Christy was born, born my youngest daughter. I would wake up at night and uh, she would be standing over me, just staring at me. You know, just just, just cold stare. And I would just look her in the eyes and, and it got to the point, and this is the thing about domestic violence for the person that's going through it. It got to the point where I knew that one day I may not wake up, but I was gonna stay to protect my daughters until things got bad enough to where I could get custody of. And if it was for me to get hurt in order for me to be able to show the domestic violence, then that's what I was gonna do. But I was gonna try to protect them with everything in me. What was the breaking point where the relationship stopped? Did you have to leave? What happened? It had got to a point where um, in uh, Seneca, we were living in Seneca, and the cops had been calling my house probably about 20 times, and half the times I'd call them and half the times my neighbors would call them. And uh, as the police said, every time they came, it would be my ex-wife raising Canyon acting crazy. And at this particular time, I'd had enough. A whole lot of other things had happened. Uh, adultery had happened in several ways and um, and I was tired of being pushed around and, and being cussed out and all that stuff but the cam what broke the camel's back was when uh, for the last time she wanted to beat Angie with extension cords and I stopped her and I was like that's it you know you gotta leave you, you gotta go and uh, she was like you know I'm not going anywhere this is my house too she knew the law you know we were married and so you know and uh, I knew what would uh, make her go outside. So I picked up what she considered was her personal dresser. I sat it outside. Everything that she considered personally hers, I started sitting it outside for her to go outside. And the whole time she was cussing and raising cane and she started beating holes in the walls with a hammer. And uh, she had a butcher knife in her hand saying that she was gonna kill me. And uh, I can't remember if it was my next door neighbor or the, the ones in front of me, but. One of them called the uh, police. Well, the police came out, and uh, at first it was two officers, and then they radioed for uh, backup. That's how violent she was getting. And uh, then it was three more officers, and it ended up being five officers in my house. And um, I told them what had went on, and she has a seven-inch butcher knife in one hand and a hammer in the other hand, and she's knocking holes in the wall all through the trailer. She cut every electrical cord in the trailer. She turned over the uh, washing machine and dryer cut those hoses, uh, she cut the hose off the uh, VCR, VCRs back then, and um, everything that had an electrical cord, she cut it. And, um, and with five officers standing in the, in the house, and uh, I was pleading to them for them to do something, you know, that's why I called you. And uh, they said, well, you know, we can't do anything because it's her property as well as yours. And she's walking around saying, you know, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you when they leave. And uh, there's nothing they could do legally because she wasn't coming at me. And, she, and my dad was in there at the time, and, and he was trying to talk to her. And she's steady, knocking holes in the wall and, and cussing and raising cane. And once she crossed over to anger, there was, she, was, she was gone. You know, that's where she was. And like I said, I didn't know that being kind to her, trying to love her through it, but it got to the point where it was like I would fuss back because I didn't know what else to do. You know, I would fuss. She'd be yelling and cussing, and I'd be yelling and cussing because there was what else was there left for me to do? I'm trying to defend myself and, and my kids and trying to get her to see that she has a problem. And it's like for her, it was no problem. This was, and that day was a deciding factor to leave. But a few months before that was another scary situation. And that happened at the skating rink in uh, Seneca. Uh, myself, Angie, and her were skating. And uh, Angie 
was skating and she wasn't that good because she was only like about six years old. And uh, some other little girl was coming around the skating rink and bumped into Angie and knocked Angie down. Well, my ex-wife jumped up off the bench from beside me. She was a very good skater. She jumped up from the bench beside me and she went flying out there and she grabbed the little girl and pinned the little girl. The girl probably was 10 years old, probably at the most. She grabbed that little girl and pinned that little girl against the wall. And she was cussing that little girl, talking about she better not ever touch her baby again. I was scared to death. I jumped up and I couldn't skate that good. I go trying to fly across the floor and I end up twisting my ankle halfway across the floor and end up having to go to the emergency room. But I finally got over there to her and uh, got her to release the little girl. And I just knew that whoever her parents was was probably gonna jump on us. And I'm telling her, you know, we gotta leave now. We, got, we gotta get out of here, we gotta leave. And, uh, I, and I'm telling I could not believe what I saw. That was the first time I saw her get violent to another child. I kept her from my child, but I saw that when she felt the need, she would be violent to anybody. And, and for her to just go across there and snatch up that little child over an accident, you're in the skating rink. People bump into you and knock you down. And so I had to go to the emergency room that night and, and get my ankle wrapped up. But that was really the beginning of, even when she hit the lady, I didn't really see that that was such a major problem. I just thought she had anger issues, you know, and that her going to being sentenced to get the help, it would change things, but it didn't. It didn't because, and that's the thing that I also want to be able to reach people with. There's help for you, but you have to be willing to take the help and let the help happen. See, she was going there and she could have got help, but I don't know if she wasn't capable of receiving the help at the time, being there but not really hearing, or if she just didn't want it. The bottom line is things didn't get better. And so I want to let people know that, that today, no matter what your issues are, you can get help. They, they have help out there for everything. And it's my responsibility with me going through domestic violence, with my daughter being killed in domestic violence, for me to let people know that's going through it that you can get help, that you don't have to be the abuser and you don't have to get abused. Let's talk about your daughter. Mm-hmm. She grew up, you know, you talk about her being six in the skating rink. Mm-hmm. And she grew up, what was her name? Angela Michelle Peppers. And tell me about her. Uh, Angela was a beautiful soul young lady. Uh, she really cared about people, and she cared about doing the best that she could do, especially with school. Angie would cry if she made a B. You know, she was like an A-B honor roll student her whole time in school, but she hated to make Bs. She always wanted to excel. She was very smart. She went through a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of the things and see this is the thing with me I tell stuff real I tell it as it happens and uh, she went through uh, the bullying and the sad thing is she went through the bullying with uh, uh, with black girls mm. because she talked uh, real good English you know she talked the correct English she was very smart uh, she she wasn't interested in getting in trouble and saying, talking all the street slang and all that so she was picked on, and she wasn't trying to act better than nobody. That's just who Angie was. She cared about her schoolwork. I didn't never have to tell her to come home and, and get your schoolwork. She was always doing that on her own. So she was self-motivated in that area. But she always felt insecure because of the bullying that she was going through and also because her mom was not in her life. Mm. You, know, uh, her you mom, think that created a hole for her? That changed everything in her. And both my daughters. Really? That changed everything. It changed my life because of the way she was when she was in their life. But it also changed their life because for them, they really loved their mother and wanted their mother. Angie especially, because Angie had been around her mom. And Angie would ask me sometimes, uh, Daddy, why my mommy don't want me? And I would mm-hmm. have to sit down and try to explain to her. And this is what I used to tell her all the time. Because I don't believe you bash a parent right. to a child, no matter what that parent has done. Because if you do that, you hurt that child more. Mm-hmm. See, so many people will bash the child, bash the parent to the child because they're mad at the parent. 
but you're hurting the child because that child loves them. Despite what happened nine out of ten times, that child loves them. Mm-hmm. And and so I didn't ever want to bash her to Angie. So I would tell Angie that her mama had problems that was that she couldn't handle. And it didn't have nothing to do with her that she loved her, but she didn't know how to show her love. And I would always tell her that. And you see, for me, knowing everything that happened and why it happened, that was very hard. You know, for me to to tell her that, but that was very real because I didn't want to hurt Angie. I was still hoping that even though we were uh, getting a divorce, that that she would change, that she would become a positive role model in Angie's life. Because again, I had my mother and father. I didn't know anything about divorce, and basically, I was the first one in my immediate family to get divorced. So all this was uh, all this was new for me. Being a single parent, I had a loving family that would help me take care of them, but I also had some controlling family members because I'm a black man with two little girls. That's tough. How is it to be a black man in this society with two girls and no mother? Do you have to fight the stigmas and the stereotypes? Yes, and some of those uh, stigmas and stereotypes came from people that I didn't expect, but it is a whole lot. It's a whole lot harder on a woman mm-hmm. that's a single parent right. than it was on me as a single parent. Ah, so you see, you see that even in the hierarchy that even single women have a hard time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, single women have a, a whole lot harder time than me because with me being a single man with the two girls, there was a lot of empathy showed to me mm-hmm. by a lot of women. I had offers for them to, certain women said they would keep my children if I needed to whenever uh, I had to work. If I wanted to play basketball with the guys where I was going and there was other people, they would watch my girls while I played basketball. The women were more uh, empathetic to that. Whereas when a woman has children, there's not too many men going to step up and say, I'll keep your kids while you work. That's right. And and I guess it would be interesting to say, and I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I assume you probably met other women that escaped in their domestic violence situation yes. that had children, and you saw, you were empathetic to them because you saw how hard it is for you. Yes, yes. What, what was that like? It was, it was strange in a way, but in a way it wasn't because with certain women— I had a bond, and that was that was the beginning of our bond, was for us to sit down and talk about what we had went through, not to bash the other por- person, but to try to get some healing from it. We we had identification, and I, and I have a friend that used to ask me to talk to women that had been through abusive uh, situations because I had been through it, and I never take up for the person being the abuser, and I learned that the person that's being abused has a responsibility. You see, and that's kind of different than some people when they deal with uh, domestic violence. See, I knew that I was responsible for my actions. What I didn't know was that I could take that cape off from what society puts on us men, that we should be able to handle this and, and we should be the knight in shining armor kind of thing. And there comes a time when you surrender and you let somebody, you try to lead somebody to the help that they need because I can't help them. You see. How, how, was it hard to accept help? Because, you know, us men, you know, we, we're built to be the provider. We're built to go protect the family. We're built to bear the load. We're built to, we think that we should handle it all. But at some point in our lives, we realize we can't. Was it hard to ask for help? Or was it not at all for you when you realize that I just can't do all this? It wasn't hard for me to ask for help because of the family that I had. What was hard was for me to accept that in some of that help came a lot of control from the people that loved me and loved the kids. And you see, I know that there were good intentions, but what was hard was asking for help from people who loved and wanted to control how I did things. You see, I, I worked swing shifts. I've worked swing shifts basically all my life. And that was, a, that was one of the reasons I knew when I went for custody of Angie and Christy, because Christy was born at the time that I got the divorce. Christy was two years old and Angie was seven when, I, when my ex-wife and I uh, split up through the final declaration of the, the divorce proceedings. And um, 
I knew that I needed help because I worked swing shifts. And there was no way that uh, I could, could uh, they didn't have a second shift babysitters then. You know, they didn't have third shift babysitters. And I had a, a loving mother who would let the kids be down there whenever um, I was working. And I even stayed there myself because of giving up the trailer after um, it was too much money to get it fixed after she destroyed it. And uh, see, I found out a lot of things that, that uh, she already knew. She knew that her name was on the insurance and that if, that's why she was tearing up the trailer. Mm. She knew that she was tearing up the trailer, mine and her name was on the insurance, so the insurance wasn't gonna cover the damages. Mm. You see, and see, I didn't know that until she'd already read the papers because she was the one that basically went and got the trailer and uh, in my name, put the money down for it. But you see, that's what I didn't see. I didn't see that she was, if she could control everything, she was happy. Let's talk about what happened to your daughter. Did she meet someone or was it a friend? Talk about what happened to your daughter. Uh, she met him, I think, at, uh, at uh, I think it was Taco Bell then. When uh, I think that's where she met him at, it seems like. That's where she met him at. He was working there and she was working there. How old was she? Uh, when she met him, she was, mm, I want to say maybe 18 or 19. Yep. Yeah, I want to say maybe uh, that old, maybe maybe about nineteen, and um, and uh, I didn't know they were dating at the time. She was a little older than him, I think. I mean, he was a little older than her. I think he was maybe seven or eight years older than her, and I didn't know anything uh, about him. But uh, for me, you know, it's all right for a woman to say uh, her female intuition that she didn't like somebody, but when a man says it, it's it's a little bit different it's not socially acceptable but there was just something about him that just didn't uh, feel right didn't feel right to me I and I didn't know him but it was just something about him but you see I also learned that uh whoever my daughters pick I need to accept mm -hmm. because I want my daughters in my life mm -hmm. you know I was not gonna let somebody that they were choosing to be with keep me from having a relationship with them and see it it was early when I met him so I didn't know anything negative about him and I'm one of those people if I don't specifically know beyond the shadow of something negative about you I'll accept you yeah it doesn't matter and uh, as time went on I saw that uh, Angie was uh, uh, really crazy about him and um, and uh, Angie went off to school in Kentucky in Berea to Berea College after she uh, graduated and you see the the effects the effects of not having her mother in her life, of me um, raising two girls uh, in the family and, and with a lot of help, but sometimes that help wasn't the kind of help that I needed um, because the kids learned how to uh, play the adults against each other. I'm still working swing shifts and I'm not there all the time, and so they knew how to play the uh, adults against each other, like some kids do sometimes. But in, in my situation, it was totally different because there was very dominating personalities that, uh, like I say, I know that loved me and loved them, but they didn't know how to be, they didn't know how to be a helper instead of being control. Uh. And that's what made things rough in that area for me. Because like you said, I, I knew that I was supposed to be, they're my children, so I'm supposed to be the provider. And I know that for me, this is what I believe, that a number one rule for a parent is to provide a safe place for your children. Do you don't think she was equipped to deal with that with the situation that was about to come on because of the loss of her mother and not having her mother in her life? No, I wanted them to get counseling, and I tried to get them to get counseling through, uh, through my, uh, the place where I worked. But it was going to be difficult to get them to counseling because I worked the the swing shifts and by the time I really saw I didn't think they were really going to need the counseling until Angie was about 16 almost 17 and then I couldn't make her go to counseling right she got 17 so what happened uh, she was at college did they keep on dating or did they get married or what happened yeah they kept dating and um, the next thing I knew uh, one day Angie came home and said that they were married and I was heartbroken oh. because she uh, left school. And like I said, this was a, a student that was a B honor roll. 
you know, that had a, had a dream of either becoming a civil rights lawyer, uh, a doctor, or a nurse, and she had the abilities. Yep. All she had to do was pick which one, because she was very intelligent, very loving and caring person. But Angie was always mixed up, and, and I, could, I could see the hurt in her from not having her mom in her life. You know, I could see that hurting her, and we would talk about it, you know, at different times. So they got married. How long were they married until uh, he shot her? Uh, let's see. Trey is 12 now. So I think they got married. They were married about 9 or 10 years, I think. I think they were, yeah, I think they were married about in between 8, I think, and 10 years. And to shed some, some light on why I say this so much about her mom, after I got custody of them, her mom could not uh, visit them unless I was there. She couldn't take them with her. And this is what a lot of people don't know about how I got custody of them. I never testified about anything that happened in the marriage. Nobody ever testified about anything that happened in the marriage, about how Edith was, about how I was, about any of that. The judge subpoenaed, my lawyer had the judge subpoena uh, her mental health records. And only the judge saw what she herself said about me, about herself, about her life, about our marriage. And due to that is why the judge gave me custody. He never asked me questions about, well, Mr. Peppers, did this happen? He didn't ask me anything. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the reason that I'm saying that is to displace uh, the myths about when you go to family court, somehow the truth can be told. Right. And it doesn't always have to come out of your mouth. Right. And in my situation, it didn't. It came from her mouth. So the judge went by what she said, and that was enough for him to grant me custody without any questions. That, to me, was a God thing. Because a lot of times people go through domestic violence, they go through different divorce and all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of lies thrown around in court. Well, in my position, it wasn't. I didn't have to say yay or nay, and uh, neither did she, because she said it before we got to court. So with that, what happened to Angie? Well, Angie, uh, after they got married, uh, she moved back here, and she left school, and that just devastated me because uh, I was so much hoping that she would get out of Clemson, the boyfriend before her, before her that she had. Um, a lot went on with that relationship. And uh, so I was grateful for Angie to get away from here so that she could achieve her goals because she was getting sidetracked too easy. Right. And uh, out there she had a job. Um, she, she had housing. Uh, Angie was well taken care of. They had daycare out there. So I wanted her to be a way where she could achieve her goals and stay focused. And he was going back and forth out there, and I didn't like that. Mm. So they, So she moved back here. Mm -hmm. Is that when it all started, or? That's when I knew that it all started. They moved into some apartments um, in Seneca, and this was when I knew that something was really going on was um, after Trey was born, I think was the, uh, no, I'm trying to think of which one was first. It was either the apartments that were in Central, where they got into a, um, fuss and stuff and, and uh, he said that Angie threw a clock at him first and uh, Angie called me and uh, I went down there and my dad went with me and I talked to both of them and uh, tried to let Angie know that uh, you don't because of what I had went through mm -hmm. I tried to let her know that you don't hit first right you know under no conditions only unless you're trying to d defend yourself physically right you don't get mad and throw anything at him and I let her know that that's, that's domestic violence, that you're the one perpetrating it if you're the one that lashes out first, mm -hmm. physically. And uh, I was trying to let her know, you know, you don't have to do stuff like that, and y'all right. can't do that kind of stuff. And uh, then it, it just kept escalating. Uh, I got it. They moved out of that apartment, and they moved into an apartment in Seneca. And I don't remember how long it was, but um, it was after Trey was born, and uh, he's 12 now. And he was a little baby. And um, Angie called me and said that he wouldn't give uh, Trey to her, that she was going to leave. 
because they had been fussing and fighting and she was going to leave. And you see, it goes back to how domestic violence goes. They'll keep the thing that's the closest to you. He knew that she was not leaving without Trey. And um, uh, the other two was in school at the time. And uh, so she called me. And again, I'm trying to do what I've been taught is the right thing. So I get immediately on the phone, I'm in Clemson, and I call Seneca police. And I tell them that there's domestic violence going on at those apartments, and I need for an officer to meet me there because I'm gonna protect my daughter and that child. Right. And um, so uh, I tell them where the apartments are and what apartment number it is. This is, and, and I go and I get my gun because I don't know what I'm going to face. What I do know is that uh, Angie says he won't give her the baby. So I don't know if he's got a gun holding baby or not. So I get my pistol and I put it in the car and I'm driving up 123 and I'm praying. And uh, I decide to go to the police station first to make sure that they've already dispatched somebody there because I want an officer there. And um, so uh, they tell me that nobody has left yet from there. And here, here goes my dilemma. And I tell them why well, I called, it took me about eight minutes to get there. I said, I called about 10 minutes ago. I said, and nobody's at the apartment yet and I'm already up here. Well, they were like, no, we, we didn't have anybody that we could send, right? So I said, I told y'all this was a domestic violence thing going on there. I said, I called y'all for y'all to come up there to help. I said, y'all need to send an officer now or I'm going on. And they were like, well, you just need to wait a minute. And I'm like, no, I'm not waiting. I said, I called y'all, y'all know what's going on. Y'all, you need to get somebody up there. And the lady said, well, calm down. I said, no, I'm not gonna calm down. I said, we need some help. And uh, one of the officers came in the back. He said, I'm getting ready to, to go up there now. And so I said, okay, I'm going on because I'm scared. I don't know what I'm going into or what's happening to my daughter or my grandson. So uh, the police officer, uh, he's still behind me. I, I leave first and uh, I'm there in the parking lot and he gets there maybe a minute or two after I do. And um, no, by the time he gets there, I go on in. By the time he gets there, I'm already inside and have taken care of the situation because when I get in there, I see that uh, he's sitting in the chair and he's holding, holding my grandson in his arms. And uh, Angie's telling me that he won't give him to her. She's crying and saying that he won't give him to her. And uh, I walk over to him. I said, uh, give, give Angie uh, Trey. He said, no. I said, give Angie Trey. I said, she wants to leave. I said, you're not going to stop her from leaving. And you're not going to stop her from taking Trey. Give her Trey. And uh, he said, no, again. I told him, I said, I'm going to count to three. I said, if you don't give her Trey, I said, I'm going to whoop your butt. I didn't say butt. And uh, I, I got to two, and he handed him up because I was not going to allow this to get any worse because still, again, I didn't know what he had in the chair with him or if he had anything in the chair with him. But by the grace of God, he didn't. But um, that's the kind of stuff that domestic violence, that's, that's how you put the parents of the person that's going through it in a situation of what do I do? What happened when she got killed? Everything, everything changed. How did um, she die? She got shot four or five times. By Trey? I mean, by her husband? Yes. How did, was that a fight? What happened? I really don't know because uh, I was the last person to talk to her on the phone, by her phone. I called her two days before some stuff went down with them, and he called me. He called me because he felt like he had Angie in the wrong and he was wanting to flaunt that to me because he said out of his own mouth, uh, you think Angie's an angel. Well, she's not, you know, and I told him, I said, I don't think Angie's an angel. And, uh, excuse me, and um, uh, I sat down and I talked to them then and I let them know that if y'all can't get along and raise these kids without all this craziness going on that y'all need to separate for a season like the Bible says. I said, y'all don't have to look at separating for good. I said, but separate, take care of the kids and, and y'all work on each other. You, you work on yourself, you work on yourself and see if y'all really want to be together. I told them, I said, all this craziness don't need to happen. Mm -hmm. You see, and, and I tried to be a mediator. I never went to him. 
except for at the first beginning I did, but I stopped going to him because Angie was my daughter. Mm. I, and once I saw that he felt like I was going to take up for Angie, I didn't try to talk to him. I tried to talk to her. Mm. And uh, So you talked to her on the phone. Yes, uh, and I asked her, I said, "Is um, I said, how you doing? She said, I'm fine, Daddy, how you doing? I said, all right. I said, is everything all right? I asked her a second time. And she said, yes, sir, everything's all right. She said, I'm doing all right. I said, okay, baby, I'll talk to you later. It was just a little short conversation. And she sounded just like she always sounded. Well, that was at 101 by, by my phone and her phone. That was at 101. In the day or in the night? In the day. In the day. At 1.15, I found out from um, his brother that he called him to say that he had done something that he couldn't take back and that he had shot Angie and that he was going to shoot himself. And uh, that's what his, his brother told me, the phone call that he got. Well, uh, the time frame that they say uh, it happened was around 1.15, 1.16, in, in between that time and 1.20. And uh, so I know that uh, by Angie's phone that I was the last one to talk to her because there was not another phone call on her, on her phone. And uh, I don't know if he had the gun on her then or and she was just saying that or if he did that after, if mm. he pulled a gun on her afterwards. Why do you think he shot her? Because sometimes with domestic violence, it takes the, the, the abuser to the point of where they don't want nobody else to have that person. That's how deep the sickness goes in some people. How is it to be a part of a cycle where you saw your wife and then you saw your daughter? Like, how do you, how do you live with that? It's, it's heartbreaking. But I've learned to accept that everybody, God gives everybody a ram in the bush. In other words, God gives everybody a way out. He'd have had a way out, my ex-wife, to get help. She had a way out. I had a way out, you know, to get help, and I took it. But I took a stand, and that's, I think, the difference. And I was trying to get Angie to take a stand. There was, diff there was another situation that happened when Angie went to court, and uh, he lost his job over it when he, when he pulled a gun on Angie. And I didn't know about it until Angie told me about it. She would have been dead before that had it not been intervention by God. I taught Angie how to use the Luger when she was 16 because I was working the swing shifts and I wanted the kids to stay at home while I was on swing shift. They would get off the bus right in front of my house and my mom and them lived on the next road. So I taught her, I figured out a system. I taught her how to shoot my 380, how to take the clip out and how to take the bullet out of the clip and how to load it and everything. And I took her to the place and let her learn to shoot so she could shoot the gun. Angie was good with the pistol. She could shoot it real good, and I taught her to all the safety. Made a plan with her that before I came home, if I got off from work early, that I would call first, that you don't let nobody in this door, that if grandmommy and granddaddy was going to come down to the house, they would call first. If any of my family was going to come to the house, they would call first. You are to let nobody in the door unless they call first and unless it's immediate family. And because Angie was five years older than Christy. So Angie was 16 and Christy was uh, 11. So they were old enough to be at home by themselves when I was at work. But uh, my parent, my mom didn't want me to leave them down there. And uh, But had I not taught Angie how to use that gun, that uh, he came over to Angie's house where she had moved out again because she left him like three or four times. And she was living in Central about two miles from me. And uh, Angie told me that uh, he came in there that day and saying that he was going to kill himself. See, and that's what he would do at first. He wouldn't um, act like he was going to harm Angie with a gun or anything. He would always say he was going to kill himself, trying to get her to stay out of pity. That's what some people who do domestic violence do. And um, so Angie told me that uh, he said that he was going to kill himself. And Angie said she finally talked him into, he had pulled the gun out. She talked him into giving her the gun. He gave her the gun. And uh, she said she put the gun up and kept talking to him. And he, he left, and he left the gun there. She said she took the bullets out, took the uh, clip out, took the clip out, took the bullet uh, out of the chamber, and she put them in one closet, and she put the gun in another closet. And, um, and she said, I think it was about, Maybe a week later, two weeks later, he came by and had heard that she was had talked to some guy or something, the jealousy. And uh, he came there and he went to the 
and found the gun in the closet. He was so angry, she said, he didn't even look to see that there was no clip in the gun. Mm. And she said he pointed the gun at her and he pulled the trigger. And, uh, you know, it, 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 I see, I can look back at all this stuff now and I can see what God had intervened. You may do the little simple thing for one reason and it may make a difference later on for a whole nother reason because she would have been dead that day because she said he was so mad he pulled the, the, the top back and tried to pull the trigger again. And then he noticed that there was no bullets in the gun. What is your message to women or men that live in abusive relationships? What do you tell them? How do you encourage them? What is your advice to them when they are weighing what to do? What do you tell them? For them to seek help with the resources resources that are out there. Because there's a lot of resources that are out there that are anonymous that you know they can go and get information and get help of how to deal with the situation because it's hard to tell somebody to just leave because part of the fear that some of them have if they just leave is that they'll follow them some of them don't want to go home because they know that that person is violent enough to where they will follow them to their parents house or to their girlfriend's house or to somebody's house then they'll put them in danger See, so they're worried about putting the other people in danger also, some of them that go through it. And to um, find a way to take a stand. That is, that for me, and, and this is just only my situation. Because I know that it's different for everybody. Not everybody's gonna lay there and, and wake up in, in the middle of the night and see the person that they're involved with standing over them looking at them crazy and just stay there and go back to sleep but you see it got to the point and how I look at that now that was very dangerous but that was all I knew to do because I was not going to leave without my two daughters you see so like I say I understand and I'm saying what I'm saying now for the woman that's in the situation or the man that's in the situation and they want to leave but they know if they leave that they can't take the kids with them or, or protect the kids because they're in danger too. Pray a lot. Pray to whatever you know is out there, but find some way to take a stand where you don't make the situation worse. So I had to act like I wasn't fearful because that's what she thrived on. She wanted me to bow down to her. She wanted me to be scared. And, and even though I didn't hit back, I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared to the point, I was scared, but I wasn't scared to the point of where I would always let her see that fear because that's what she wanted to see. And that's what a lot of the people who are going through abuse has got to realize, that they have to find some kind of way to take a stand, to get, try to do things that doesn't ignite them. See, I don't believe in poking the bear, and that's what I had to try to tell Angie, that she knew how he would get so don't do certain things. And that's not blaming them. It's kind of like if you know a snake will bite, why are you gonna try to pick them up? Well, if you know if you do certain things that you don't have to do, why would you do them? To, to anger that person because that person is gonna hurt you, you see? And so if they just get to the resources that, that are out there, and it's not always going out of your house. Sometimes it's what you watch on TV that can give you some encouragement. But also, if it gets to the point where you go to court, because when Angie went to court about when he pulled the trigger and she asked me to come to court with her and I was there in court, she did not tell them about that part. You gotta tell it all? You gotta tell it all. Don't worry, you know what Angie told me? Angie told me, Daddy, I didn't want him to lose his job. I was like, your life and the kid's life is more important than his job. Seeing a lot of women, and I say women, but I guess some men do it too, will protect them, the abuser, because of financial reasons or because they don't want to break the family up. I stayed because I wanted to make my family work. I wanted my family to stay together like my mom and my fathers. They've been married like 60 years. I wanted to get married one time, white picket fence, live happily ever after. I was chasing that dream. Well, that dream was not for me with that person. Somebody was gonna die in that relationship and I didn't want it to be my kids or me. That's why I left. But there's a lot of people that stay. 
I had got enough somewhere the person going through it has to get enough if it had not been for the threat to the kids I may have stayed longer because they were the main reasons I got out was once it had happened so bad I felt like okay I've got to leave no matter what I cannot protect Angie no more from this so I gotta leave and so it was the love for them that made me leave not not just the fear for myself but for a lot of people it's got to be the fear for themselves because everybody don't have kids that are involved. Sometimes it's just a man and a woman. Mr. Peppers, thank you. Thank you for um, for um, asking. And um, there was one other part I wanted to tell you if it's all right. Absolutely. On that day that, um, that I left, the five officers that were in there, this is where uh, I also want to be able to help educate uh, the police that they need more training they need to not get desensitized to going to a place over and over again and, and thinking that okay well they're gonna stay together so it really doesn't matter kind of thing because when those five police officers were sitting were in my living in my kitchen and she's in there waving that butcher knife around saying she's gonna kill me when they leave and um, one of the officers in there because I told them I'd had enough with them staying in there and nothing was happening. They telling me ain't nothing they could do. My dad had had enough, he left. He, he couldn't, he left with tears in his eyes. He couldn't take it no more. And I told him, I said, y'all can leave. I said, if y'all not gonna stop her, I said, y'all can leave. I said, that's why y'all were called. I said, I've called y'all down here. And I said, y'all are saying to me, every time y'all come, she's the one that's, that's acting crazy and creating a problem. But y'all ain't doing nothing. I said, she's tearing my whole world up and y'all are not doing anything. I said, y'all can leave. Well, this real buff police officer, he says to me, I better calm down before he takes me to jail. That was it. At that time, it didn't matter to me if I lived or died because these five police officers were standing in my kitchen and they, this woman has been walking around for 20 minutes waving a butcher knife, saying out of her mouth over and over again that she's gonna kill me when they leave. She's got a hammer in her other hand. She's beating holes in the wall. I'm standing there waiting for them to do something and trying to tell her to stop. I'm not cussing nobody. I'm not raising no cane. But because I must have hurt his ego by telling them to leave, she's cussing, threatening me, laughing about it because she knows as long as she don't come at me, they can't do anything. And she's like, I'm just waiting for them to leave. She's openly telling him what she's gonna do. But because I tell, I get excited, I get angry because they won't stop her. And I tell them to leave. And he's gonna tell me, he's gonna put me in handcuffs. I backed up to that kitchen sink and I looked at all five of them and I said, nobody's gonna put me in jail. I said, I called y'all here for y'all to stop it, and I haven't harmed nobody. Y'all are going to get out of my house, and she's going to leave. I said, you're not going to touch me. And one of the other police officers uh, told him to come on, and they took him outside and uh, talked to him, and one of them came to me. And uh, they told me, they said, there's nothing we can do. We're going to leave. Well, we're going to send you some help. And I, I was like, what do you mean? They said, we're going to send you some help. This is another place where God intervened because from the time they left, she came at me with that knife. And uh, she put that hammer down and she came at me with that seven inch butcher knife. Had it not been for my boxing training, by the grace of God, I would be dead. Because she came at me swinging that knife at me, trying to stab me and cut me. And what I learned as far as self-defense, and this is why I try to tell people that you need to learn self-defense because you don't ever know when that could be the difference between mm. you living and dying. One time when she crossed, I was trying to time her. One time when she crossed her body because she was left-handed, she swung the knife at me and she crossed her body. Well, when she did, I grabbed her arm. I stepped in and grabbed her arm and I pushed her arm against the kitchen sink and I kept hitting her arm against the kitchen sink for her to drop the knife. And she finally dropped the butcher knife after her arm slammed about three or four times. She dropped the butcher knife. And I'm trying to hold her and because uh, she used to take karate. I'm trying to hold her and uh, keep her from getting anything else. And she gets her left hand free and we fall against the coffee table in the living room. 
and we had candles on the table with the, can the glass candle holders. She grabs one of the candle holders and she hits me with a glance and blow to the back of my head. Well, I, when I saw her gonna hit me, I ducked my head and so it glanced. That second time I told her to put it down. That second time she drew back and she hit me a second time. And I, I saw kind of stars for a second. I knew that if she hit me and she knocked me out, I was not gonna wake up. And I told her, I said, drop it or I'm gonna hit you. Mind you, I've never hit this woman. She's pushed me, she's cussed, cussed me out, called me punks and everything. I've never hit her. She didn't think I was gonna hit her. She drew back again to hit me with it. And when she drew back again, I hit her. I hit her uh, right here on the eye and she dropped it. She dropped it and she went limp. She was like, you hit me. This woman is trying to kill me. And she's shocked. This, this shows the mental state of somebody who is an abuser who thinks you're not supposed to protect yourself. And, and uh, she's like, you hit me, you actually hit me. And I said, yeah, you were trying to kill me. And uh, she has a knot on her eye. I have a knot on the back of my head. And what the police did, I, I got her up and, and let her go. And she went outside and I wouldn't let her come back in. And uh, the police finally came and what they did was they sent a uh, highway patrol because the city cops couldn't do anything. This was ingenious by them. She came back in the house when the police came and he wanted to talk to me. And she was outside and she came back in and she's still cussing and raising cane. And uh, she gets a block outside the steps that you step into. She gets one of the 16 inch blocks. Well, she wasn't strong enough to really pick it up and slam it to bust the window out. But she picks it up and she's scraping the window of the windshield of the car, trying to mess up the car window, trying to bust it. And uh, the uh, highway patrolman says, okay, you're under arrest. And she's cussing him. She's like, what the H for? You know, this is my D car and all this. He's just, he's like, I'm arresting you for public disorderly conduct. That was a God thing. He t and he was the one, I didn't know at the time that the Seneca police sent him over there. After he put the handcuffs on her and put her in the car, he could, she kept saying, I hit her, I hit her, and he could see the knot on. He asked me what happened, and I told him what happened. I said, and I really want you to take her to Oconee Hospital first to get her checked out because she has a knot on her eye. He said, the only reason I believe you, he said, is because the police officers told me what had been going on here. He said, they were the ones that sent me out here. And with her coming outside, mm. then she was in the public. So that's why he was able to arrest her. All that, as far as I'm concerned, was a God thing. So I followed them up to the uh, uh, Oconee Memorial Hospital, and they checked her out and uh, said that she was fine. I refused to get checked out. I just had a little knot on the back of my head. But a black man hitting a woman in 1990 to protect himself, that police officer that the highway patrolman, he was a man sent by God because I told him the truth and he understood the truth. And the police officers that were there told him exactly what had been going on in there. And so that's when we totally broke up. That was the, that was the deciding factor right there that I was not gonna get back with her, that everything had to change. And that was one of the worst days of my life because the woman that I loved I had to hit to protect my life. So that, I understand how hard it is for somebody who loves somebody to fight back. That there's that, that sick thought of his honor to take it because they're gonna change. No, and I knew at that moment when I saw those stars, when she hit me in the back of my head, that if she knocked me out, I was not gonna live. That she was seriously, she had already seriously tried to kill me before she hit me with the what's called. If I let her knock me out, I was not going to wake up. And I wasn't ready to die. Mm. You are the man. <laughs> I wish I had a different experience that we were talking <laughs> about. <laughs> I wish I had a different experience, but I believe God allows us to go through certain things to help other people. And, um, I just hope that I don't have to help my grandkids through this. Like I was trying to help their mom. I hope that I hope that they learn what they need to learn so that they can use this tragedy and turn this tragedy into a blessing to one day help other people 
to not have because their story is their story. I have no clue what those what all those kids went through at the house. Just like just like people don't know what I went through because of the stereotypes. It's usually the man. So so me telling my part and what I and, and what I went through. Oh yeah, there's gonna always be. Oh well, you know he ain't telling the truth. He went through this. I could care less about that because I know that there are people, there are men out there who are going through it. And there are women out there who are going through. Forget about the gender and let's deal with domestic abuse. That's that's what my purpose is. That's what Angie's Advocate's purpose is. It is to deal deal head on with domestic abuse. Black, white, professionals. Uh, it happens to the, the janitor and it happens to the doctor. It happens to the lawyer. It happens to the police officer. It happens to the, the, the rich. See, it doesn't, domestic abuse there's no discrimination. That's how I want to deal with it because the only way we can stop the violence is to deal with the truth. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.